Wow, that was incredible. Tell your neighbor, happy birthday, America. Wow. Well, the message this morning is really a lot different, I think, than any message I've ever given. Uh, in some ways, it was hard to put together, but in some ways, I felt like it may be one of the best that I've ever given. Because this message began with a word that Chuck Pierce gave about a month ago about trauma and grief and the effects that they can produce on people. And after that, I went to Chuck and said, well, you know, I've been through a lot of trauma and grief this year, and I still see effects of it in my life. What do I need to do to get free? Do I need to go through deliverance to get set free? Do I need to go through some inner healing for trauma and grief? And Chuck made a very interesting statement. He said, I do see grief on you, but you won't get rid of it till you do a message on it. So my message today is processing grief and trauma, the path to healing. Now when Chuck gave that assignment to do this message, it struck me, I don't think I've ever heard a message teaching about trauma and grief. And that's really a shame because most people at some point in their life will experience trauma and grief and many of them won't have a clue how to deal with it. And that's really the situation Linda and I found ourselves in earlier this year. And so I wanna just tell, start out by telling the story of how we came into the experience of trauma and grief. And to let you know why we were in trauma and grief, I need to tell you a little bit more about Timra. Now, several years ago, the Lord told Linda and me to bring a young woman named Timra into our family as a daughter. Now, Timra was one of the most amazing people I have ever met. She was a Native American from Lakota Sioux tribe, and she was incredibly talented. She was a singer, a dancer, a musician, and an artist. But growing up, Timra had been a victim of ritual abuse. As a child, she had been repeatedly tortured, programmed, and was later sex trafficked. This little girl, let me tell you, there's greater evil in the world than most of us have imagined. And those things left a lasting mark on her. And she struggled with many issues. At one time, she was heavily addicted to drugs. She tried to kill herself on a number of occasions. But then she met Jesus and was wonderfully saved. She loved Jesus with all of her heart. She had incredible spiritual gifts. She was a prophetic healing evangelist. And everywhere she went, she led people to Jesus. Now, Linda met Tamara on a prayer journey to South Dakota to the reservations up there. And she was so impressed with Tamara's prophetic gifting, she invited Tamara to come down to a conference we were having here in Denton. And so Tamara came down, and she actually stayed in Denton for several months. 
And she wasn't really sure where she was supposed to go next. And since she didn't have a place to stay, Linda asked me if we could invite Timra to stay with us. My first response was no. We have too much going on. We are much too busy. We really can't do that. But I agreed to seek the Lord and pray about it over the weekend. And during that time, the Lord spoke to me very clearly. And God said he was not asking us to give Timra a place to stay for a few months. He was asking us to invite Timra into our family as a daughter. And so Timra lived with us on and off for several years. Although she still had many issues, she, God gave us a supernatural love for her, and she really felt like a member of the family. We celebrated holidays together. We went on vacation together. We had family celebrations. Here we are celebrating my birthday at a pizza, pizza place down on the Denton Square. She was even part of Lindy's wedding. She had truly become a member of our family. But she still had a desire to reconnect with her real family and finally decided to move back to Minneapolis where her dad and her nephew lived. But even after she moved back to Minneapolis, she would call or text us almost every day. And at first she seemed like she was doing very well up there, but as time went by, it was clear she was having struggles. She quit her job, she sank into deep depression, she was still tormented by her past. And then on Monday, January 30th, 2023, an ice storm hit Denton. And as we talked with Timra last night, that night we were very concerned. She said, I need help. She, was, she said she's so tormented, she really can no longer function. And knowing her history of attempted suicide, we urged her to get help. We said, if you feel like you're tempted to hurt yourself, go check yourself into a hospital. You've done that before, you know how to do that. But she assured us that would not be necessary. We found out later that her dad talked with her shortly after we did, and he gave her the same advice. Well, the next morning, our temperature was 25, with freezing rain predicted throughout the day. The storm was predicted to last until Thursday, coating everything with ice. And the announcement was made that area roads would be impassable, and everyone was urged to stay home. And that morning we got a call from Timra's dad in Minneapolis. The police had just contacted him. And sometime the night before, Timra had gone out to the stairwell of her apartment and hung herself. Timra was dead. Now we always knew with Timra that was a possibility. Because of the abuse she had suffered, she had struggled with suicide since she was a teenager. She had tried to kill herself several times. She had even spent time in psychiatric hospitals because of it. But that didn't make the news any easier to hear. The news hit like a sledgehammer. We were devastated. 
Confined to the house by the storm, we felt numb. The grief came in waves. We would sometimes find ourselves weeping uncontrollably. At times, the grief was actually physically painful. And I was totally surprised by the power of the grief we were experiencing. But I found out later that our experience was actually a typical response to grief. I found some quotes about grief online. If you've gone through grief, if you're going through grief, these symptoms will probably sound familiar. Here's some quotes about what grief feels like. One said, your heart literally aches. A memory comes up that causes your stomach to clench or a chill to run down your spine. Some nights your mind races. Your heart races along with it. Your body is so electrified with energy, you can barely sleep. Grief tends to, to leads to complex somatic and psychological symptoms. The person who experiences a loss may have a range of feelings, including shock, numbness, sadness, denial, anger, guilt, helplessness, depression, and yearning. A person may cry for no reason. The pain is caused by the overwhelming amount of stress hormones being released during the grieving process. And those effectively stun the muscles that they contact. So as we walk through grief that first week shut in by an ice storm, it raised many questions because we had never been through grief before. When my mom died, she had been unconscious for the last year of her life. We would pray for her every day, Lord, take her to heaven. She doesn't want to live like this. And so when she finally went, we were just filled with praise. Lord, she's in heaven now. We had never been through grief. And so I, we would ask ourselves, is it okay to be weeping like this? Should I try to be resisting these feelings? But even during that first week, God began to minister to us. He showed us that the Bible has a lot to say about grief. So if you are in grief, there are several things you need to know. First of all, you need to give yourself time. It takes time to work through grief. In the Bible, an initial trauma is followed by a time of mourning. In Deuteronomy 34, it says, when Moses died, the Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. So when Israel died, Israel, when Moses died, Israel stopped, and for a month, they mourned. Mourning was an intentional time with a clear purpose. It was a time to remember the loss and express the grief. Biblically, mourning usually was a 30-day period. And in that time of mourning, it was important that you feel free to express your grief. You don't want to push it under. You don't want to shut it up. The Bible talks about wailing women. These were professional mourners who would sit with a grieving person and wail, sometimes loudly. And that left the person suffering grief totally free to express themselves. 
You know, if you're just sitting by yourself, you may feel sub, uh, self-conscious if you're weeping, if you're wailing. But if you're in a whole room full of people that are weeping and wailing, you're free to let loose. When the ice storm finally cleared, we went down to Lindy and Russell's. Lindy is our daughter. Russell is her husband. He's the prison chaplain down there near Houston. Russell's first wife had died just a few years ago. And we knew that he had worked through some very significant grief. And so we felt free to express our grief with him. Now, the most important thing when you're going through grief is this. You need to listen for the voice of God. See, if you are grieving, God wants you to know he is very close to you. Isaiah 61, God comforts those who mourn. Psalm 137, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. In Isaiah 53, it says Jesus died not only to forgive our sins, but to bear our griefs. Psalm 34, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. So when you are grieving, God will come to you. He wants you to know he is very close to you. He wants to speak to you. So listen for his voice. Let him speak to you. Let the Lord wrap his arms of love and comfort around you. And during that, those first few weeks of grief, God spoke to us very clearly on several occasions. On one occasion, Linda was feeling the sorrow and she asked the Lord, is there anything else she could have done to help Timra? And God said, you did everything I asked you to do. Anything else would not have made a difference. Then Linda said, well, if you knew it was going to end this way, why did we do this? And God said, I knew I could trust you to walk with Timra to the end. He said, I wanted her to know that she could have a family that loved her. And then God said, she knows that you love her and she loves you. And at one point, God actually, I believe, sent an angel to Linda to say this, stop thinking of Timra as dead. Timra is with Jesus and she is more alive now than she ever was. And then God spoke to me several times. Once I was feeling the grief and the sorrow and God just spoke one phrase. He said, Timra is safe now. And that was so significant because I know because of the things she had gone through in her life, Timra never felt safe anywhere. God wanted me to know Timra is safe now. Timra is in that great cloud of witnesses that the New Testament talks about. And she's aware of what's happening here. You know, when we had our Pentecost celebration in the Miracle Center, it was the first praise celebration we had in there. It was wonderful. But I just remember all the times Timra had talked about the Miracle Center. And long to worship, they're long to see that in, that in use. And I, I was just feeling so sorry that we're here now, and she's missed it. And God spoke very clearly. He said, she hasn't missed it. 
Timra is watching. And she is very happy. And then, a fourth thing you need to know if you're in grief, is that even though we grieve, we have great hope. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who have died so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. We have hope. Here's an awesome painting someone put on Facebook during that time. It's called First Day in Heaven. And I looked at that and I just started to weep because I knew that's Timra. That is what Timra experienced. Jesus met her, embraced her. I knew she's in heaven with Jesus now and that we will see her again. Finally, there's a fifth thing you need to know if you're going through mourning. There comes a time to move on. Joshua 1 says, after the death of Moses, the Lord said to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them. See, there comes a time for the mourning to end. That doesn't mean the grief is over. The grief may come back in waves for years to follow. But the time comes to focus on the future. We love Timra very much and we miss her. But God has a plan for our lives that goes far beyond Timra. Timra will not be a part of our lives in this next season, but we know that we will see her again. But for right now, it's time to move on. You know, it's very important how you respond to trauma and grief. A time of grief is a dangerous time. It's a time when you are vulnerable. Satan comes to steal and kill and destroy, and grief is one of his tools. So if you are experiencing trauma or grief, you need to know that Satan wants to use that grief to cut you off from your future. But you don't have to let him. I want us to look at three biblical characters and see how they responded to trauma. The first is Jacob's son, Reuben. He tried to escape the pain, but in the process, he lost his future. Then there was David's daughter, Tamar. And she grieved her loss, but fell into hopelessness. And finally, there's Jacob's son, Joseph. And his whole life was full of trauma, but he was able to see the hand of God at work in the midst of it, and by faith, he fulfilled his destiny. So let's start with Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn son of Jacob. And as the firstborn, he occupied a privileged position in the family. He was destined to inherit a double portion of his father's estate. He would be the leader of the tribe and the priest of the family. But Reuben made a foolish decision that changed the course of his life. In Genesis 35-22, we're told he committed adultery with his father's concubine, Bilhah. And because of that one act, his birthright was lost. The double portion was taken away and given to Joseph. Leadership was taken away and given to Judah. 
the priesthood was taken away and given to Levi. In one foolish act, Reuben lost everything. Why did he do it? Well, what he did was his response to trauma. See, Reuben's family had been through a very traumatic period. They had fled from Laban and were saved only because God (laughs) commanded Laban not to harm Jacob. Escaping Laban, they faced a confrontation with Jacob's brother Esau, who had also vowed to kill Jacob. Entering Canaan, their sister Dinah was raped at Shechem. Two of her brothers massacred all the men of the city in retaliation. The Canaanites were enraged, so fleeing Shechem for their lives, Rebekah's nurse Deborah died and was buried at the Oak of Weeping, and then Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. And still they journeyed on until they came to the Tower of Eder where they finally stopped. But the whole family had gone through a time of tremendous upheaval, violence, and loss, and they just had to keep moving through all of it. It was not until they stopped at the Tower of Eder that they could even begin to process what they had just gone through. And that's when Reuben slept with Bilhah. He was not thinking about the blessings that lie ahead. He was not thinking about what he could lose. He just wanted comfort now. His response to trauma was to do anything he could do to try to escape the pain. But the choices he made were very costly. Then there's Tamar. Tamar was the daughter of King David, sister of David's son Absalom. Her story is in 2 Samuel 13. We're told David's son Amnon fell in love with his half-sister Tamar, and he pretended to be ill and asked Tamar to come and fix him some food. So Tamar went to Amnon's house, made bread, and baked it, and then Amnon said, bring it to my bedroom so I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the bread to her brother in his bedroom, And when she took it to him, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. Struggling against him, she said, no, my brother, please don't violate me. But he refused to listen. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out. And he called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long, long, beautiful robe she was wearing in mourning for what had happened to her. She put her hands on her head and went back to her home, wailing as she went. And we're told Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. Now, it's important to understand her response. Tamar had suffered terrible trauma. Every part of her being was violated. There was obviously the physical violation, but her soul was also violated, her mind, her will, her emotions. Not only that, her conscience was violated. And she fell into hopelessness and never recovered. And she spent the rest of her life desolate in her brother Absalom's house 
One commentator defined desolate this way. It said, she was as one laid waste with the joy of her life hopelessly destroyed. For an Israelite woman to be desolate was a living death. And see, Tamar's response to trauma was to retreat from life. She isolated herself. Some people do that. She truly became one laid waste with the joy of her life hopelessly destroyed. And she allowed that one traumatic event to determine her whole future. Her response to that trauma cost her everything. But see, that was never God's will for her. Her experience with Amnon was traumatic, but it did not have to cut off her future. And I believe God had a wonderful destiny picked out for Tamar, but because of her response to trauma, she missed it. A third example to responding to trauma is Joseph. Now Joseph's whole life was trauma after trauma. As Rachel's firstborn, he was Jacob's favorite. And to show his love for Joseph, Joseph, Jacob gave him a richly ornamented tunic with many colors. That was a sign he was not expected to work in the fields like his brothers. And the result was Joseph's brothers hated and resented him. To make matters worse, Joseph told his brothers about the prophetic dreams God had given him, about his future, that one day all of his brothers would come and bow down before him. That was the final straw. And one day his brothers caught Joseph in the fields, beat him, stripped him of his tunic, and threw him in a pit, planning to kill him. But before they got around to killing him, a caravan of Ishmaelite traders passed by on their way to Egypt. And Judah said, what will we gain if we kill our brother? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. After all, he is our brother. And the brothers agreed. And so the brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. So Joseph found himself in Egypt, far from his home and family. He was sold as a slave into the house of an Egyptian official named Potiphar. But when he resisted Potiphar's wife's attempt to seduce him, she falsely accused him of trying to rape her, and Joseph was thrown into prison. I mean, the trajectory of his life just gets lower and lower and lower, one trauma after another. Because of his walk with God, he gained a reputation in the prison for being able to interpret dreams. And then one day he was taken out of the prison and brought to Pharaoh's palace. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had had a dream that no one could interpret. And someone remembered Joseph. Because Joseph could interpret the dream, Pharaoh highly, highly honored him. He was set free from prison, placed in a position of great honor and responsibility in Egypt. And Joseph warned Pharaoh that a seven-year famine was coming. And because Pharaoh listened to Joseph, Egypt was prepared. God has used Joseph to save a nation. But the famine not only affected Egypt, it also affected the land of Canaan where Jacob and his sons lived. And when Joseph's brothers found out there was food in Egypt, they came down to buy food for their families. 
And the man they had to deal with was Joseph. And they came and they bowed down to Joseph. Joseph's dream was fulfilled. He hid his true identity. He asked them about their family. He demanded that they bring Benjamin down to Egypt. Because uppermost in his mind was the question, had his brothers changed? Would they treat Benjamin the same way they treated him? And when he saw that they defended Benjamin instead of betraying him, Joseph revealed his true identity. And Joseph reconciled with his brothers. The covenant line was saved. The whole family came to Egypt just like God had prophesied to Abraham. And in Egypt, they were preserved through the famine. Now, in the story of Joseph, we see how trauma can be overcome. See, it looked like Joseph had lost everything. But in spite of all the trauma, God had a plan to restore everything and move Joseph into the fulfillment of his destiny. See, Joseph had a call of God on his life. He was created for a purpose just like you. Tell your neighbor, just like you. God gave him prophetic dreams to reveal his call. You know, our dreams can often be a reflection of our call. God has planted in your heart a desire to move forward into your destiny. And Joseph had an appointment with destiny. Out of the infinite possibilities open to Joseph, he needed to be at one specific place at one specific time to be launched into his destiny. And God had a plan to get him there. To achieve his destiny, Joseph needed to be in prison in Egypt and have a reputation for interpreting dreams. And so with infinite love, God began to work everything in Joseph's life together to get him to that place. For Joseph, it was a painful walk. He was rejected by his brothers. He was sold as a slave to Egypt. He was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He was sent to prison in a foreign land. He was forgotten by those who, for, who promised to help. Joseph's whole life had been terrible trauma. And he had no idea what was happening. But at each step, we see God was making sure that Joseph would keep his appointment with destiny. What God required of Joseph in the midst of the trauma, he walked with integrity, walk in faithfulness, walk with God, avoid bitterness, and to do it all by faith. Joseph had to choose to believe in spite of everything he saw, he chose to believe God is good. Now, how could he do that? I think he did it by trusting in the prophetic words God had given him. Joseph's prophetic dreams were a basis for faith. I believe Joseph clung to God's promises for his life. Every time something bad happened, sold as a slave, uh, put in the prison, he would go back to the prophetic dreams that God had given him. And said, this seems terrible. It seems this is not looking hopeful. But this is what God has said. My life is head toward. I will believe God. And because of that, he trusted God through all of the trauma. 
He walked with integrity. He walked with faithfulness. He avoided bitterness and stayed on course. And the result was at the exact moment when Pharaoh asked, who can interpret my dream? Joseph was there. He was at the right place at the right time. Now see, if Joseph could have avoided all the trauma, he would have missed his destiny. Joseph spent most of his life not knowing God's plan, but he chose to believe that God had one. Let me say that again. He spent most of his life not knowing God's plan, but he chose to believe that God had one. You may not understand God's plan. That doesn't change the fact God has a plan. And see, in the end, Joseph looked back and he saw what God had been doing. He told his brothers, God sent me ahead of you to save your lives. It was not you who sent me here. It was God. He made me the ruler of all Egypt. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish all of the things that are happening now. See, Joseph came to know what Jeremiah knew. Jeremiah wrote, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Through all of the trauma, God was working out a plan. Joseph came to see what Paul knew. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Through all of his painful experiences, God was working to bring about great good for Joseph. So when you encounter trauma, know that God is good. Tell your neighbor, God is good. Not only that, God is in control. And God is shaping your life for a good outcome. You know, losing Timur was very hard. Many things in life are, but God's plan is still good. Choose to trust him and move forward. Now, if you are going through grief, you need to be very careful how you respond. Jacob's son Reuben just wanted to escape the pain, but he lost his future because of the choices he made. If you are going through grief, be very careful what choices you make. David's daughter Tamar grieved her loss but fell into hopelessness. She also lost her future. You know, it's valid to grieve. It's important to grieve. But grief is not forever. Know that God still has a future and a hope for you. Jacob's son Joseph lived a life filled with trauma, but he saw the hand of God at work in it all, and by faith he fulfilled his destiny. So ask God to let you see his hand at work even in trauma and even in grief. Now, there's one more passage that we want to look at. It's Luke 24. It's, by, it's about two very traumatized men. It says on Resurrection Sunday, two disciples were going to a village called Emmaus. 
They were in deep distress. Jesus had been crucified. They had been in mourning for three days. We're told their eyes were downcast. They were feeling grief. But there was also a lot of confusion because they had heard a rumor that some women had gone to Jesus' tomb early that morning and found it empty. And as they were talking with each other about everything that had happened, Jesus came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He said, what are you discussing together? They said, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, Jesus asked? About Jesus of Nazareth. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And then in addition, some of our women went to the tomb early this morning but did not find his body and they told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And Jesus said, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. And so he went to stay with them. And when they sat down at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and began to give it to them. And as he broke the bread, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And as they saw who it was, he vanished from their sight, but they returned to Jerusalem saying, the Lord has risen. Now, these men had just suffered the greatest trauma of their lives. They had believed Jesus was the Messiah. They were disciples. They had committed themselves to him. They believed he was the hope of Israel, but then they watched him be tortured and killed. Their hopes were crushed. And they were now three days into the grieving process. They were experiencing all of those symptoms of grief that we read about, the shock, the numbness, the pain, and the sorrow. But a report had come from some women that the tomb was empty, and they desperately wanted that to be true. But they didn't want to be in denial. But then Jesus revealed himself in the breaking of the bread. And all of their grief, all of their confusion ended when they saw Jesus. Let me tell you, if you are in grief, if you cannot break free, your solution is Jesus. See, he not only died to forgive your sins and to heal your sickness, he died to carry your grief. And he wants to carry your grief today. Now we're going to close with the Lord's Supper. If you don't have your elements, put your hand up and someone will get you some. But as you take communion, let Jesus reveal himself to you. He's come to carry your griefs. Ask him to heal 
your broken heart. His word says, surely he has borne our griefs. Right now, hold your, take all of those griefs and just lift them up to him. Say, Lord, I give you my grief. I give you my sorrow. And I declare by your stripes, we are healed. Now let's stand up. Perfect way to celebrate before we go into this 4th of July holiday. Let me emphasize one last point that Robert was making. You have to watch for signs to make it through your grief. And the only way you're going to see them is through communion. But if you commune, he will send you signs. He will do wonders on your behalf. He will show you the way into your future. Father, we thank you. I'm going to ask Pam to come play, pray for the body. Robert came to us this morning and said, I need to ask your forgiveness. When the twins died, I, I had never experienced grief. I didn't even know what y'all were going through. And yet, when he was doing the service, it was beautiful. He knew all the right scriptures. And Pam just went over and hugged him and said, well, you did great. It ministered to me. See, grief, why you have, it has a time period to it. If you don't make it through that time period right, you end up having a grieving spirit. I want to break a grieving spirit off of any of it. Father, I decree in the name of Jesus that the spirit of loss linked with grief will be broken. The confusion linked with grief will be broken. The uh, despair linked with grief will be broken. The isolation will be broken away that's linked with grief. And Father, I decree freedom. 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 Freedom in the midst of our loss. I decree glory in the midst of our loss. And I decree victory in the midst of our loss. So, Father, right now as we prepare to partake of the body of your Son, I thank you that as we submit to you that we are healed by the stripes that your son bore for us. And so, Father, right now, I just ask that we would recognize that the only thing standing between us and the healing that you have promised us is our own stubbornness, our own, our own denial of what is ours to take.
and what you have given for us to receive. So, Father, right now we ask that as we take this little bite of bread that you would remind us of what your son did for us so that we could be healed in Jesus' name. Now, Father, I decree our eyes are opened in ways they have not been opened. When they took the bread, when they ate of it, all of you, wherever you're watching out there, I hope you're taking communion. When they took the bread, their eyes were opened. Now, let's take the blood. I want to ask the Lord to do something. See, grief it is a process of the emotions, but if it becomes a spirit, it embeds in your bloodline, and then it invades your organs. Father, I decree today as we take this communion that grief is being broken out of our blood in Jesus' name. The power of your spirit is breaking the grief in our blood. No matter how deep it is, your love is deeper. And I decree this communion go deeper than any grief and root out grief in Jesus' name. Now, I want you to turn to somebody. I want you to tell them you're going to see differently. You're going to walk differently. You're going to be, have a different emotional response. And now say glory, hallelujah. Let's thank God for Robert speaking to us today. That was the best message for our nation. Now, Father, I send us forth. I send us forth with victory. I send us forth with protection. And I send us forth to celebrate in the name of Jesus. Jesus.